The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and... Uh, this being Election Day, it's kind of appropriate to talk about how laws are made. They say that uh, there's two things you don't want to see how they're made, laws and sausages. But uh, my guest this hour had a, uh, a unique bird's-eye view of the development of some very uh, important legislation in the mid-60s. And he writes about it in a uh, new book called Crisis and Compromise, The Rescue of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. A memoir by Robert Kimball. And Robert joins me by phone. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Glad you're here. Um, let me. How, at age 24, did you find yourself um, in the middle of, of really one of the, the most significant legislative packages of the uh, 1960s, at least certainly the mid 60s? That's a good question, and one I still don't know the answer to. <laughs> I, I was working for Congressman John Lindsay of New York, and during the civil rights fight, I became somewhat involved with that. And when the going got kind of crazy, I was asked to participate 
on the Republican side, working with other staff members and trying to get legislation through. And Lindsay was a Republican who eventually became mayor of New York. That's right. Um, now, you said you got asked to, to serve on the Republican side. Would that have been your first choice? Yes, at that time I, I wasn't affiliated with any particular party, so I was working as John Lindsay's legislative assistant. I was very happy to, um, to be doing that. Now, did you, you had been going to Yale. Was it your intention to get involved in government and or politics? I wasn't sure what I would be doing, but I had the opportunity to become the, the uh, legislative assistant to John Lindsay, which I eagerly accepted, and I was happy to be involved in a major way with legislation. But then you ended up playing much more of a key role in um, shepherding, if you will, this legislation from committee and through the House. How, how long were you with Lindsay, and then you ended up holding another position in the uh, um, uh, Republican legislative system? Well, I joined his staff in 1961, I was a summer intern initially, and then later he asked me to be, become his legislative assistant. And is that the role you held throughout this process, or did you end up holding other positions? I thought I read something about um, you leading, um, oh, what was the name of the group? The Republican uh, Legislative Church Association? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. I was asked to do that, to work with uh, other members and the staff in the House of Representatives. And what was that process like? Of course, um, Lyndon Johnson uh, took credit, <laughs> not surprisingly, for uh, the passage of the, the Civil Rights Act in 1964, and when signing it... Um, made some reference to fulfilling JFK's legacy. Um, how much of a shadow did JFK uh, cast over the process of, of passing that bill? Well, John Kennedy's death was a tragedy for the entire world. Sure. And when Johnson took over, he wanted to, you know, fulfill that legacy. So I think it was important for everyone that the legislation move forward. And I was privileged to be in the midst of it all as an experience I had as a young man, which I, for which I was very grateful. Was it, um, was the process of, of wrangling support as contentious as it is now? Different, different world. Uh, I would say back in the early 60s, there was a, a greater degree of, of harmony and respect among the members. Today, it's more contentious and, and more acneous, so it was quite different. And you, you make it sound like... Um, 
Republicans were really much more responsible for the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act than than Democrats, certainly on taking the lead. Is that how 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 is it that it it seems like we remember it differently? Of course, we remember it differently because it was reported very differently. The Republican role was probably a little bit more involved than the Democrats. The Democrats were involved as well. And in those days, the two parties worked together much more harmoniously than they do today. Do you have an example of that? Or was your role um, confined to working with the staffs of Republican legislators? My role was was primarily to work with the staffs of Republican legislators, but it, it was something that's kind of cut across party lines. So it, it was important to have good relations with members on both sides. And at the and Robert Kennedy, RFK was still Attorney General at the time. Yes. And and you say in your book that he never read this legislation, even though later in his uh, political career and his presidential campaign, he really championed that legislation and, and civil rights in general. Robert, he evolved, as many of us do. And at the time, at the beginning, he was not as shall we say, uh, agreeable to working with both sides of the, of the aisle. So it, he changed, the world changed, and, and uh, tragically, he, we lost both Kennedys. What, what role did uh, then Teamster President Jimmy Hoffa play in all this? Well, the Teamsters were a very powerful lobbying group. And an interesting, an interesting uh, group in many ways. They uh, hosted the Washington Film Society. They had a great place to have lunch. I had the opportunity to have lunch with Jimmy Hoffa once. It was interesting and, and impressive. He, he, he struck me very positively, although he felt physically <laughs> struck as well, pushing his finger into my chest. <laughs> I admired him, and I really do not understand to this day why he fell from grace so dramatically. Were the legislators that you dealt with and, and their staffs during the, the process of getting the Civil Rights Act of 1964 through, were they more engaged? Were they more likely to be up on the issues uh, you, you I'm sure remember famously uh, a few years ago Nancy Pelosi talking about the Affordable Care Act and saying we have to pass it to know what's in it <laughs> yeah that's that's amusing to me today I think that people lived in a different world and were more inclined to try to do their homework to be available to their constituents and, and to lobbying groups. So I, I would say that it, it, was, it was a world that made life a little bit easier. Who was the Unholy Alliance? The Unholy Alliance was what 
Chairman Emanuel Seller, who led the Judiciary Committee, described as the relationship between the Republicans and the Southern Democrats. And he blamed them all the time whenever something went wrong and legislation moved forward. And, and Democrats were, did the, the passage of that bill have a significant difference on, uh, or, or impact on party allegiance, um, especially in the South? It, it seems that the South became more red after that. That's right. Uh, at the time, the Southern representatives were largely Democratic, and Republicans only then began to challenge the uh, domination of, by the Democrats and run political contests with them. So yeah, it, it, was, it was a very tough situation for the Republicans because they were constantly looked on as the goats or, or the villains in the piece. And the, the role that they played well, is very significant and has been overlooked over the years. How did the Civil Rights Act, how did you first become aware of it? Well, I became aware, as everybody did, that there was a tremendous need to get legislation passed in the United States. And uh, I was just lucky to be working in the Congress and had first-hand opportunity to... Uh, get involved with the process. And to what, to what degree were you stumping for the bill in your various interactions with other staff and officials um, as opposed to having input? Well, I, I, to say I stumped for the bill would be an exaggeration. I played a, a minor role in that respect. I think that what happened is that the, the climate was much more open for legislation to be passed, and I found most of the people who listened to what I had to say were sympathetic and, and, and intrigued by the whole business of getting the legislation through. Robert, um, I have to take a break here in... Uh uh, uh, about a minute. Um, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more about this? Be happy to do so, Tom. Yeah, uh, Robert. I, I want to. When we come back from break, I, I, I want to go through with you the process and and how long it took and what the various uh, steps were. Kind of a timeline of the of the passage, if you will. Um, my sure. guest is uh, Robert Kimball. He's the author of Crisis and Compromise. Um, which is, uh, oh, and I turned my notes, The Rescue of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and it's uh, Robert's memoir, if you will. If you're listening to us on WFOV, 92.1 LPFM Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors.
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about the passage of the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act um, as uh, told through the eyes of someone who was there in his memoir, Crisis and Compromise, The Rescue of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Robert Kimball, who joins me by phone. Hi, Robert. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, Tom, that was okay. It was fun. <laughs> well, I'm glad you think so. You did. No, I, really. I hear them every day. Um, <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> but, I, you know, I speaking of, of every day, I mentioned before the break that I, I wanted to see if you could give sort of a timeline to get some sense of how this this bill actually became a bill and subsequently got passed. Um, what were some of the 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 key fence posts along the way? I would say the uh, Supreme Court decision back in the 50s began to clear the way for legislation to be introduced. And so in the late 50s, the first bill came in 1957, and that included the formation of the Civil Rights Commission. Another bit of legislation also proposed by Eisenhower was turned out to be the 1960 Civil Rights Bill. And then the efforts, particularly by Martin Luther King Jr. and his colleagues, to increase attention for the legislation made it possible for major civil rights legislation to be introduced. Were African-American followers of Martin Luther King um, able to influence uh, this by um, by having the vote? Was, wasn't the vote um, uh, an important, for black Americans, an important part of this legislation? It certainly was, and it was all a process, and it took several years, as we know, for it to happen. The Republican effort was spearheaded initially by a conservative Republican from Missouri named Thomas Curtis, and he instilled the desire among his colleagues to introduce legislation in the early 60s to get civil rights on the map more more dramatically. So it, it began to sort of gather in a number of different directions. But I would say Martin Luther King's involvement was, was vital. Uh, the March on Washington, while it was ceremonial and important and, and, and did create a, a nice atmosphere, was less important than, for example, the Birmingham church bombing in, in which the four little girls were killed. Right. I think that dramatically increased attention for the legislation and created a greater need for things to happen in a positive way. So all of that led up to the introduction of legislation and the finally the, the passage of the legislation. Now, you're t when you talk about the uh, March on Washington in August of 1963 uh, for Jobs and Freedom, is, is that the famous I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King? Yes, it is. It, it is the time of the famous speech, which is, as years have gone by, but has become an even more famous speech. But at the time, was was very well received, and I, I think that we we now you know look to Martin Luther King's unique leadership as a very positive and important step in the process. 
how is it in in your opinion robert from your vantage point was it possible why i guess just simply why was there more republican support than democratic support for this the democratic party was split of course there was a large southern contingent and that's one of the reasons why the support was was less on the democratic side the Republicans didn't have that kind of dramatic uh, ideological split. So that was a, a major factor. I, I think that we, we look back on it now. Republicans have been underestimated in this process. A number of people have looked upon the Republican Party as simply an anti-labor legislative group, and that simply isn't a fair assessment of their role. They were a much more diverse organization than, than people realized. There are so many things about this book <laughs> that are interesting to me, Robert, and if it seems like I'm jumping around, forgive me, I am. Um, but let me uh, ask about this group of four that you were one of uh, working in a secret location to finalize the bill. Is secret location overstating it a little, or was it really important to to be a little undercover in finishing the bill up? Before the legislation was agreed to, there was a need for some degree of privacy, I would say, rather than secrecy. And we, we were compelled to do this quietly because it was unclear whether it would all resolve itself positively. Who were the four? The four were, on the Democratic side, the two representatives of the Department of Justice, uh, Nicholas Katzenbach, the Deputy Attorney General, um, Burke Marshall, the attorney, Assistant Attorney General on Civil Rights, representing the administration, and uh, William Copenhaver, who was the Republican counsel on the Judiciary Committee, and myself as head of this Republican organization, the Republican Legislative Research Association. And we were... Uh, told to try to complete the process. It had gone a fair degree before that, but we, we had this meeting in, 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 in the Congressional Hotel in which uh, legislation was hammered out. And and what goes into to hammering it out? I mean, was this a very long document? I, I mentioned earlier when I uh, in the earlier segment when I made reference to Nancy Pelosi talking about passing the Affordable Care Act to know what was in it. That was, what, 2,000, 3,000 pages? Are we talking about that kind of heft in this bill? Or Oh, no, no, no. no nothing as dramatic and as lengthy as, as all that. No, the number of pages I've completely forgotten, but it was more in the low hundreds than in the thousands. And, uh, you know, we, we had a few areas where we still disagreed when we had this meeting, but I think that, that there was a positive air, and it's, a, it's different today, and I'm sorry it's so different. Uh, we, we really were working on the same plane, and I felt that even though we were on different sides of the issue, that there was a certain mutual respect between the Democratic representatives who were from the Justice Department and the Republicans, and we were all trying to reach a goal, a common goal, 
and it was a, it was an exciting process to go through a difficult time of course but not as difficult as anything today were you surprised when uh, john lindsay switched parties in 1971 I was very surprised. I thought he would stay a liberal Republican, but it, it seems that the liberal Republicans began to disappear, and I think he began to look for an alternative. And uh, I was surprised, and I think a little disappointed that he did it. I think he stood out as a nicely liberal member of the Republican ranks, and and when he became a Democrat, he was just another another foot soldier. Did you ever want to get involved in? running for an elected office, or did you like it behind the scenes more? I did not seek at any time in my life to run for elected office. Uh, it wasn't so much that I operated behind the scenes so much as it's just that the opportunity as a staff member gives you different perspectives than if you're a member. And, and I, I, you know, I relished that, and I, and I was very happy to operate in that res- in the responsibility role. Well, and and I maybe overstated that a little bit when I said behind the scenes, but but it certainly would seem behind the scenes to um, the public at large, the the people that don't follow it very closely. And I probably should have chosen the world the words, uh, you know, in a more supportive capacity. Well, I think that we all, you know. While we, we disagreed on issues, there was not a, a major k- kind of schism that existed in the political process that we have today. And I, I, I'm, I'm glad I operated at that, at that time and was given the chance to, to participate on that basis. Um, how much, you know, we hear about the deals that get made and the wrangling and the pork how how much did this bill take on as it was traveling through the various uh, uh, stages that a bill goes through well the the bill obviously is subject to amendment and to proposals from all sorts of members so it you know it gathered some degree of, of, of sort of ancillary support as it went through the process. Uh, but I, I think on the whole, the different atmosphere reflected a difference in the country. And, and the country today is, is, is more divided and, and more contentious than it was back in the early 1960s. Do you have any, um, any thoughts as to why that is, Robert, as, as someone who was on the inside and is now watching from, you know, from a distance uh, to some degree, do you have any sense on, on how it got to this point where people wouldn't say, you know, I think this and, and you think that, but maybe we can figure out a way that works for both of us to this do it my way or you're a moron? I don't know how this happened uh, any more than anyone else does. Uh, I, I think that for some reason or other, the, the country became more divided and less inclined to, to work by consensus. And, and that was, I was lucky to be able to work in that kind of atmosphere. It was, it was difficult at times, yes, unsettling, not always easy. But, but, but all, in, all in all, 
the differences were never so great that we couldn't speak to one another. As support was being lined up for this bill, um, were there were there significant holdouts? The way there are right now over some of what President Biden wants to do, and I'm thinking of uh, Senators uh, Manchin and Cinema. Uh, uh, not really different in that respect, but but I you know I, th- I think that there was a sense in which people worked for the common good that I don't feel today, and that the, the we've become more fractious and, and more divided. And I think that the country has been the loser as a result of that. How did um, women's rights become part of this, which was sort of initially a a racial, um, an attempt to to balance race relations? Uh, How did women's rights get into this? Well, I think you could say that the leader of the Southern Democrats, Howard Smith of Virginia, was partly trying to undermine the pro-civil rights people by by adding something he thought would would be divisive and contentious. As it turned out, that that became one of the most important parts of the legislation. And I I think that we underestimated the importance at the time. But it, it, it is... Something that I think we look back on and say, yeah, in, in fact, one of the great positive outcomes of this legislative battle was the fact that there was less, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> difference on sex that b- disappeared as a result of the uh, efforts of Judge Smith and the uh, Southern Democratic leader. In some ways, it seems like maybe that that turned the the civil rights bill into civil rights for more than just black people. That is correct. It did. The the whole legislation opened up opportunities for uh, people to uh, Yeah, I think that it's... um, as the country grew larger, it became more diverse and also more divided. And I, I view that as a, as a negative aspect of, of contemporary life. Do you think recent uh, Supreme Court decisions have chipped away at the, uh, at the act? I think possibly a little bit, but but no, that's not the main reason. I think that just there's less this common uh, consensus among people today in, in the United States, and I mean, in a way, it's hard for me to recognize the differences between the time of the early '60s and 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 the present moment. When we pass a, a significant piece of legislation like the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, how is it that we end up relitigating this stuff? Why, why, isn't, why doesn't it just become the law of the land? I think because, you know, most laws are not uh, accepted unan- unanimously and without disagreement. And so there has been many legislative efforts and, and to, to undermine the, the bill and 
particularly in the voting rights area. So I think that we have to realize that that's the way it's been. Once the, now, as we all know from the Schoolhouse Rock video, how a bill is made, or I hope we do, <laughs> but um, once it makes it to the House floor, is it done with committees, or does it have to pass committees on the Senate side to be taken up? No, it, it operates in both the House and Senate separately, and all legislation, when when it introduced is presented and given to, to to consideration by the committees, the relevant committees in the House and Senate, and so they operate independently. And gradually, the two sides finish their work, and then they have to have a conference to resolve the differences. Which is essentially reconciliation. Yes, it is. So. The Senate has a version, and the House has a version, and then they come together with a final version. Does it then have to go through both houses again before it makes it to the president's desk, who yes, was LBJ at the time? Yes, rejected by both houses after the, the, uh, the differences are resolved, yes, before the president receives it. And... How, where was um, LBJ on all this? I mean, ultimately he signed the bill, and he took a lot of credit for signing that bill. But, you know, anybody that's read anything about LBJ knows that he knew how to take credit for stuff. Of course he did. Um, which was a little bit of a throwback to his Senate days, I suppose. But um, was he supportive of this bill as it was going through the process because so many Southern yeah. Democrats were skittish about it? His contribution has been underestimated, I think. I feel that his role was important. He was a major force, a major factor in legislative business. Uh, Johnson is someone who uh, he could be um, a bit boorish and, and overbearing, but if on, the, on the other hand, he was extremely positive. Well, and he also knew how things worked on the Hill. Yes, he did. That was probably his, his greatest uh, strength as president. I um, think. Robert, as you look back and, and reflect over all of the things that, that happened, to you and around you during this process. Um, there are really two questions coming up here. One is, um, what do you hope people will take away from this book? And what did you take away from it? How, how much of uh, uh, sort of reliving this for the retelling of this story, how, how did it affect you? Well, way back during the uh, legislation, uh, Charles Halleck, who was the leader of the House Republicans, you know, said that someone should tell this story, that no one would, would believe that the House Republicans had played a major role in the legislation. And he said, someone should write it, and he said, maybe you should. And uh, I, I took him seriously, and I did, I did do it. And I did it partly as an act of history. I was an American Studies major in, in college, and I thought historically it was important that we sit down in, 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 in print 
the reasons why we passed legislation. And uh, I was happy to be part of the process. I didn't expect to be involved in such a dramatic way, but that's the way it went. And and what are you hoping that, that readers will get out of this uh, telling of, of that story? Is, is this maybe holding up a, a gauntlet a little bit to contemporary lawmakers and interest groups? Yes, I, I, I think it, it says that, you know, no matter how difficult it can be, no matter how much the issues divide the country, that it is very important to compromise. The emphasis on the word compromise, and I think it's taken from the quote that I, I, I cite from Henry Clay in the debate on the Compromise of 1850, and he said he went for honorable compromise whenever possible. He said that all of life is, is but a compromise with death. And he, he urged his colleagues again and again to put aside their vast differences and work for the common good. And, and that, that's still something we should, we should bear in mind as we go forward. And we often lose sight of that. Robert, I'm having a, a tremendous time talking with you, and I'm so glad you were willing to spend some time with me and the listeners this morning. It's a fascinating book called Crisis and Compromise, the Rescue of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, a memoir by Robert Kimball, who was there. Robert, I uh, always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and uh, future, if you have anything on the drawing board. Um, do you have a website? I do. Yes. It's, it's, it's Kimball at aol.com. Oh, Robert, Robert A. Kimball? Robert E. Kimball, yes, dot com. Robert E. Kimball dot com. Well, Robert, thank, do you have something on the drawing board? Do you have more stories to tell? No, I actually, in a different world, I, I'm primarily today a musical theater historian. And uh, instead of going into political, political work, I left Washington and you know, went to law school. But after that, I became the curator of the uh, Yale collection of the literature of the American musical theater and uh, became an expert on Cole Porter and others like George Gershwin. And so my work is, is in the field of musical theater, which is a, a rather different part of the world than, than the civil rights fight. So your autobiography could be called Compromise and Harmony. <laughs> Very well. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Robert, thanks again, and, uh, and keep up the good work. I appreciate it, and thank you for everything that you're doing. Take care. Again, that was uh, Robert Kimball. His memoir is called Crisis and Compromise, The Rescue of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It is a telling um, largely about how the Republican side of the aisle played uh, a very significant, if not pivotal, role in the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back with uh, more of the Tom Sumner program after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. 
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana. What are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. 
This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Our next guest is the President of the United States. Mr. President, we are honored for this opportunity to visit with you in the midst of your normally busy day in the White House. I am hopeful that the visit will be uh, helpful. First, may we extend our congratulations, although it was months ago, on your thundering election victory to the presidency. This will be for a new seven-year term. (laughs) Uh, We'll go right on with the questioning now to Mr. Swayze. Uh, Mr. President, as a continuing example of your policies, who in the years to come will be guarding our eastern coast against Russian submarines? Thirty-five Cuban fishermen. that you are contemplating some changes in the income tax law for next year. That's what we propose to do. And if your changes go through, sir, how much of our net salary will we be able to keep? One-tenth of one percent. (laughs) And where will we be mailing our income tax checks? The President, the White House. (laughs) Mr. St. Badger. Sir, vice presidents are becoming more and more important. And I think they should. Would you say that Hubert Humphrey has been a good vice president? Yesterday was quite encouraging. <laughs> uh, sir, your, your middle name is known the world over. Could you tell us what Mr. Humphrey's middle name is? Prudence. <laughs> Mr. President, election campaigns are costly as the Democratic Party allocated any funds for the next election? Forty billion dollars. And how much of that will be for your re-election as president? Forty-two million dollars. And how much for Mr. Humphrey? One million six hundred thousand. And how much to re-elect Bobby Kennedy? Thirty-eight dollars. President, according to Newsweek, an internal problem of considerable magnitude is the mounting divorce rate. What is the government's policy toward the alarming increase in Mexican divorces? We congratulate the winners. (laughs) We send warm regards to the losers. Sir, uh, uh, being the president, your health is of major interest to everybody. As an example, when you had a simple head cold and were confined in the hospital for a few days, it made headlines around the world. Uh, That's what uh, normally happens when situations like that develop. Just as a point of curiosity, sir, who treated your head cold while you were in the hospital? Dr. Howard Ross, Dr. Paul Sanger, Dr. Edward Dempsey, Dr. Hugh Hussey, Dr. Irving Wright, Dr. (laughs) Joe Willis-Horst, Dr. Charles Mayo. Dr. Lee Clark, Dr. Ian Pepper, Dr. Philip Dr. Samuel Bellet. Uh, sir, I wonder if we could turn for just a minute to your War on Poverty program, which we Dr. would like Dr. John Myers, Dr. Morgan <laughs> Fay, Dr. Helen Tossett, Dr. Jane Wright. Uh, well, many thanks for being with us tonight, sir. Dr. Frank Horsford, Dr. Joe Willis Horst, Dr. Marion Fay, Dr. Edward Dempsey, Dr. Sidney Farmer. <laughs> 
this was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 